Hey everyone, Wilson Cochran here. I had the exciting privilege of actually doing back-to-back message called Kingdom Thread. And the one you're about to listen to is Kingdom Thread Part 2. If you haven't listened to Part 1, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Kingdom Thread Part 1. But I just keep on chugging through the Bible and pulling out that Kingdom Thread for us. Diving more into the two narratives that are happening in Scripture. The, the narrative that's in the natural plane that we can just observe easily. And then the supernatural plane that... Um, we tend to overlook. So I really encourage you, go grab the book, The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. He's been an incredible influence on me in this topic and I've learned so much from him. Hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, guys. You know, my message just totally will fill so many dots in for us about what my dad was just talking about with Ahmad and with um, even COVID. So really grab the kingdom thread um, narrative and throw it into your life right now. Start looking at things through it. That's the whole point of worldviews. But if we haven't met before, my name is Wilson. So great um, for you to be looking at me this morning. I think you're really privileged to do that. And it's just, it must be nice, you know. So that's really cool for you. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to my mom. Happy Mother's Day, mom. Love you so much. She's the best. And uh, I'm married to someone who is a Incredible mother, Jennifer Cochran. Wow. All right. Here we go. So last week, I started um, a message series entitled, or uh, I, I started part one that I didn't even know was going to have two parts. But during worship, I was like, you know, I have a lot to say. Hey, dad, is it okay if, that was my dad who's just up here, is it okay if I preach next week too? Because I think I might, like, need to. (laughs) He was like, yeah, for sure, go for it. So um, last week was the Kingdom Thread Part 1. Today is the Kingdom Thread Part 2. And remember, this is part of our uh, series we've been doing called Supernatural. And we're in the second phase of Supernatural right now. The first phase of Supernatural is all about ministry. How do you cast demons out? How do you discern God's presence? Um, How do you move in courage? And then We've gone into the second phase of the series called Supernatural Worldview. And in this series, we're focusing on worldviews. And I'm going to review that here, but um, in a couple weeks, Micah Turnbow is going to preach. Or maybe it's next week, I can't remember. But that's going to be really sweet. Uh, Buckle up, get ready for that. That's going to be awesome. But to introduce and to kind of, I want to start by recapping last week for anyone who wasn't here last week. And then I also am going to um, pick, the, the pick up where I left off, if you, if you were watching, the live stream got cut off last week at a certain point. And so I'm going to review us to the point of where it got cut off, and then just pick up right there and, and finish this guy out, okay? So, or girl. Um, just, yeah. So, last week, I introduced the Kingdom Thread concept to you with this analogy of the Avengers, And if you remember, my analogy was basically this, that if you watch Iron Man, you're like, wow, this is a great superhero. And then if you go watch Avengers Infinity War, you're like, oh my goodness, Iron Man has way more significance than I realized. Like, he's actually the the leader of all the superheroes. And that really changes for you who Iron Man is, right? And then you go back and you watch Iron Man again after having watched Infinity Wars, and you're just like, it's actually better now that I've seen Infinity Wars. (laughs) Because you're seeing things in Iron Man 1 that you never saw the first time you you, you watched it. And of course, the exception is if you're a comic book geek, um, then you already got all this and blah, blah, blah. So, um, but that's what the Bible is like, okay? The Bible has a thread, a narrative, a story that's happening throughout the whole thing that you only appreciate if you understand the kingdom of God and you're able to identify the kingdom of God everywhere in the Bible. Um, and, and what's more, I would say the kingdom of God kind of holds within it two stories, two different narratives. There's the narrative that we are very familiar with, that we can taste, touch, see, and feel all the time. And then there's a secondary, or maybe not secondary, just another, like secondary implies less, just another narrative going on that is actually supernatural in substance. And you can't taste, touch, feel, and know what's going on all the time. So I'm gonna um, get into that in a moment, but let's review worldviews really quick. What is a worldview? Well, a worldview 
is the lens through which we filter and understand life's events. That is from the Wilson Dictionary. And that is me just rewording you know, the Oxford Dictionary. But remember, a worldview is like a pair of glasses. It impacts how we see and understand. You know, you don't even, the, the, here's the really in, important thing to capture out worldviews. They are subconscious and even pre-conscious. Meaning that you're not walking around considering your worldview. Your worldview is actually just telling you what is happening. Your worldview filters um, everything and, it, and, and then gets to your brain and you figure out kind of like what's going on. So worldviews are pre-conscious, they're subconscious, you're not usually aware of it. I want to give you a, a, I want to tell you a story really quick to kind of flesh this out some. I have a new friend of the church who I've been discipling and the story I'm about to tell, he gave me permission to share with you guys. So awesome guy. We, I've, I've been discipling him for about like a month now. So most of it's been like over Zoom because of COVID. But, and, and really quick on discipleship, something that God has really been showing me and like correcting the heck out of me with discipleship is this. When you're discipling someone, you're not making someone look like you. Like this, this friend of mine, I am not discipling them to be like Wilson. I am discipling them to be like Jesus. So that's like the goal of discipleship, okay? And all of us are called to grab people and be like, hey, can I help you look more like Jesus? I think I know some of the lessons that you're learning right now. Can I find out, I wanna discover where God's working in your life and then help you form the character of Christ and get behind that. Although the kind of secondary thing is I want you to take on the good things that I have, you know. Anyways, so this new friend of mine, um, he's been going through an incredible trial, like an incredibly difficult trial in life over the past six or seven months. Um, and what it kind of culminated in for him was in January, he was in a mental hospital. He, che he checked himself into a mental health hospital or wherever you call it. And it was because he had attempted suicide by driving his car into oncoming traffic. And so he, he was at an incredibly, incredibly low point, And that was, you know, how he responded to it. Well, as I've gotten to know him, he's you know, talked to me more about how sometimes that suicidal ideation and suicidal consideration will kind of come back to the forefront of his mind. And I was like, bro, first of all, I'm so proud of you for checking yourself in. Like that is an amazing, wise, brave first step is getting help and being humble like that. So like huge kudos to you. But he told me a story about when he was 16, another time he had attempted suicide. And when he was a 16 year old, him and a buddy had been shooting a pistol in the woods. He came home and was just so at a loss. They were doing target practice, you know. He was such at a loss for um, hope in life and different, different reasons that he actually put the gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Now the gun misfired and did not charge and did not kill him. So that's like a total crazy miracle. But, cause he had just been shooting it, you know, moments before. And after, I heard that story, it was like three dots connected in my head. I was like, okay, so he's attempted suicide as a teenager, he attempted suicide earlier this year, and he's battling these thoughts when he gets into a hopeless place that you know, maybe my best case scenario is just to take my own life. And it just hit me, I was like, oh, this is spiritual. <laughs> Like there's definitely the natural component, you know, I'm sure there's chemical blah, blah, blah happening, but it just hit me. I was like, you know what? When you attempt to take your own life, you are committing a sin. And the reason is because your life is not your own. Your life is God's. And when you attempt to take your own life, you are sinning against yourself and you're sinning against God. And what does sin do? It actually can, it can, it doesn't always, but it can give the devil access into your life. And it just, like all this is just kind of convalescent in my head in one moment. And I said, I was like, bro, I think you need to repent for attempting suicide. I think that if you'll repent for attempting suicide, you're gonna get free from the suicidal thoughts. And those suicidal thoughts, maybe some of them are you, you know, your brain, but I bet a lot of those are actually fiery darts from the enemy. And that's actually um, a demonic assault. That's the enemy attacking you. And so literally guys, over text, I'm like, all right, pray this, but only pray it if you mean it and tell me when you've done it. 
All right, I did it, Wilson. Okay, now pray this, and only if you mean it. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get him engaged. I'm like, just repeat after me a magic formula. But he prays the prayers. I'm telling him to pray. I was like, okay, now I'm praying for you. And I typed out a prayer, just a prayer breaking it all. And basically what I had him do is like, Lord, I'm sorry I attempted to take my own life. That wasn't right of me to do. It's yours. I'm sorry for that sin. Um, I confess that and call that as wrong. And I want my life to honor you. So like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that again. And then I just blessed that prayer and I prayed, I said, I break any authority that the enemy thinks he has in my friend's life. Because that authority was just taken away from you. He just renounced that authority that he gave to you. This is everything Luke taught us about with demonic strongholds and deliverance. And you don't actually have authority there anymore. I had to tell the devil what's up. or the demons or whoever it was, I said, your authority is broken by the blood of Jesus, by the cross, I command this to be broken and these thoughts to stop and this attack to stop in Jesus' name. And guess what? Since then, he has never had a single suicidal thought. (laughs) That was several weeks ago. I've checked into them many times. They've just stopped. They have lifted. It's because he he had made agreement with something he shouldn't have in his heart and it gave access to his life, and then he made disagreement, and he had a brother in arms come up alongside him and break it. You know, no one in the Bible ever casts a demon out of themselves. <laughs> no one ever really heals themselves either. Like, that's his community. God wants to get the power in you out to bless other people. So why am I telling you this story? Maybe, there, maybe you're already kind of intuiting how worldviews playing, but here's what I really want you to take, all right? What if I didn't have the worldview I did? What if I didn't think about that situation the way that I was able to think about it because of my worldview being biblical and understanding the spiritual realm? I would have offered him um, prayers that probably wouldn't have been helpful because I wouldn't have had faith to see what needed to happen or I would have just kept driving him back into medicine and other stuff that is good but is actually just temporary and doesn't have the power to free us. But because my worldview understood the spiritual realm, my friend got freedom. So guys, that is the backdrop importance for worldviews, okay? I talked about this last week, that our worldview can actually keep us from seeing God's work. You remember what happens in John 12? Um, A voice comes from heaven, it's God, and it says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Then the crowd that's around, they said, it thundered. But no, some other people said, no, it must have been an angel. And then here's the part that should shake us, okay? This should shake us, what Jesus responds. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. They missed the intentional, bold, radical work of God in their life because of their worldview. God was trying to get their attention, but because their worldview wasn't in line with God's and Jesus's, they missed God's work in their life. So that's what's on the line, guys, when we're talking about worldviews, okay? It's really serious, and it's really um, powerful and important. So last week, here's what we talked about, the kingdom thread. And it has, it has five phases. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recap these five, or the one and a half phases that I got through. Don't worry, phases three, four, and five, actually we can kind of just motor through after you really go deep into phase one and two. But I wanna recap for us phase one, the garden, and then the two first parts of Babel. Um, You know, I'm so tempted to do a laser pointer right into the camera right now, but I'm scared that like something will blow up, so I won't do that. Um, I wanna recap this stuff, okay? So let's go to the garden. There's two assumptions that we get. So the garden is the beginning of the kingdom thread, okay? That's like the beginning of the biblical narrative is the Garden of Eden. And what we see in the garden, there's two assumptions that are super important that we we make about what life was like before the fall. And these are assumptions that are based on scripture. and, And these two assumptions are that we had full intimacy with God and we had full intimacy with each other. With God and fellow man, there was open connection, deep intimacy. There was no shame between Adam and Eve, and there was no shame between Adam and God or Eve and God. Great connection. Second thing, there was a blessing that happened. In Genesis 1.28, it says, and God blessed them. 
And I know that it's easy just to read over and God bless them and be like, move on, you know? But the reality is that that was something. That was a special thing that they received that was tangible, that, was a me- that actually meant something. It wasn't just words, it, it, it was probably empowerment for them. And after the blessing, God gives them three assignments. And what you can just flip, like the two assumptions, just think full intimacy. The three assignments, just think destiny. God wanted intimacy and destiny from the beginning with humanity. That was his intent, that humanity would have intimacy with him and each other, and then that they would accomplish a destiny that he had for them and he had for the earth. And what was our destiny? It was to multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. We were to multiply, fill, and subdue the earth. Multiply meaning procreate, I mean, create, have kids, have sex, have kids. The secondary to fill means that don't just stay there. If you just stay there, then um, you won't all fit even, <laughs> you know? But go, fill, leave, go, go, go. And then this is the one that should really bend our minds and should also really encourage us, subdue. Fill and subdue, you're kind of like, what's the difference? Well, you know, you can go without a mission. And a lot of us, we end up going without a mission in life. And I've had those moments where I'm just like, well, I'll just keep going, you know, I'll get married, I'll, you know, like check this out. All of high school, I was filling, but I had absolutely no revelation of subdue. I was not on mission in high school at all. I just went in, went out. My mission was get good grades and make friends and kiss girls. Like that was literally my goals in high school, okay? And I'm not glorifying that. That was wrong of me. But imagine if our kids were raised and so many of our kids are are being raised this way, but imagine if all kids were raised understanding subdue. And they went to school understanding, I'm here to subdue the works of the darkness at school. That's actually my number one mission, not to get good grades, but to subdue the devil in this class and to love people well and to re- reveal Jesus to them. So anyways, that's what subdue means. And it, it, um, it, it naturally includes that there's a challenge, you know, subdue. So it's important for us to realize that God created the earth and he destined us to be overcomers. We are always gonna have challenges we are gonna face because subduing necessitates work and effort. So the three assignments, really means we had a destiny. And then lastly, um, in the garden, the fall. And here's the key um, things for the fall. Number one, Adam and Eve, they doubted God's goodness. They believed that God was withholding from them. When in reality, the devil was lying to them. The devil said, God doesn't want you to eat from the, or the serpent said, don't eat from the tree because God knows that blah, blah, blah. Basically, he says, there, God's not good. He's withholding from you. And then not only did they believe that lie, but they act on it. And what they did when they acted on it was they gave authority and um, privilege to the devil because they stepped out from under the line of authority they were in and they stepped under a new line of authority. And the devil immediately grabs hold of their authority and says, sweet, here we go. And because of the nature of their sin, it gave the devil access. It gave the serpent access into the earth. Um, They die spiritually at the fall That's when humanity became sinful. That's when humanity became sinners. Interesting to note that they had the capability to sin before they were sinners. It's a great insight into our identity, you guys, that just because you're righteous doesn't mean you don't have the capability to sin. And and also then the opposite, that the capability to sin doesn't make you a sinner. And sinning doesn't make you a sinner anymore because we're in Christ. We're going to land there. So anyways, the fall. They get kicked out of the garden. They're cursed. um, And the assignment isn't revoked, but intimacy is lost. Last thing I want to note about the garden before we go on to Babel is this, that the garden was a very unique place. It was where heaven and earth were commingling. It was where God came down freely all the time. And we know even that it was like this commingling place of heaven on earth and supernatural meeting natural because there's a spiritual being showing up the serpent. He's just there and they're not surprised. Like they weren't like, whoa, I don't remember giving serpents the ability to talk. You know, that's not Adam's response. Adam and Eve, they're just like, oh yeah, you talk to me. That's because this serpent isn't just at its core a serpent. It's a spiritual being. And the fact that they were not surprised by the fact that the spiritual being was talking to them, to me means that there were other spiritual beings around. So this was a place where heaven and earth were commingling. The Garden of Eden was. 
So now we're going to Babel, okay? And the big question at Babel was what happened here? Well, before Babel was the flood, and there's a couple reasons the flood happened. I, I really hope that for a lot of people, my description and the, what I've come to learn about the flood is ministered to you because I feel like the flood is like one of those things we're super, super ashamed of as Christians and it makes us doubt God's goodness and it makes us all worried and we kind of like read past it really quick. But look, we can just be confident. The flood happened because in Genesis 6, 5, every intention of man's heart was evil continually. Just slow down, read every single word slowly, comprehend it, every intention, evil continually. That's very, 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 very bad. God's only option because of how he chose to rule and the system he set up was to kill all of humanity and to start over because God has a destiny for humanity that's even bigger than humanity. Um, so that's the, that's one storyline. That's our natural storyline of why Genesis, of why the flood happens. But the backdrop storyline is told to us in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man, supernatural beings, natural beings, were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide a man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, when the sons of God slept with the daughters of men and they were bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who are the Nephilim? They're the offspring of these spiritual beings sleeping with natural women. That's what the Nephilim are. That, and another name for them in the Bible is mighty men. Now, it's just so quickly, that makes it really sweet when you realize that David had mighty men. <laughs> David had mighty men that were the opposite of that. If these mighty men were evil, David's mighty men were the good that were going to kill, guess what? Those mighty men. <laughs> Anyways, let's keep going. Um, now, it's for our Western worldview, I think we really struggle with, and we don't necessarily have the capacity all, all the time to understand that the, these angelic, um, fallen spiritual beings slept, had sex, you know, with humans. That's like really hard for us to um, wrap our head around. But I'm gonna explain that, not in gross graphic detail, but just in case your kids are watching and you know, whatever, mute it or something. I'm not, nothing's gonna be gross at all. But what I wanna say is this. Our idea that spiritual beings cannot have sex with human beings is not scriptural. That's not a idea that you can flesh out and build in scripture. And in Matthew 22, what Jesus says is that angels don't get married. He doesn't say angels can't take bodily form and do things. Like think about this. How many times do we see angels physically touch people? The angel comes and wakes up Peter to get him out of jail and acts. Well, then it stands to reason that fallen demonic spiritual beings could do bad things physically, right? So I just want you to get that so that you can track with this idea that there are spiritual beings that have slept with human beings and they're creating a race that God doesn't want on the earth anymore. And so he does the flood. So now we go to Babel. Um, whose idea was Babel? It's a very important question to answer. Genesis 10, 8 tells us that um, Nimrod was the leader of Babel. And this whole kingdom was his kingdom. And guess what? Nimrod is referred to as a mighty man of old. So Nimrod was actually one of these um, half man, half, probably, this is what I think, half man, half spiritual being guys. He was offspring of that race. And guess what he does? He wants all of humanity to stay put together and literally not be separated. That's what it says in Genesis 11, 4. Let's get together so we can't be dispersed, which is in direct disobedience to God's three assignments. So he's doing something to directly disobey our core destiny. He's trying to undermine our core destiny as humans to subdue and spread out across the earth. So what's God do? God comes down and he confuses their language and he disperses them. 
He confuses their language. He says, you guys aren't going to understand each other anymore. Some of you guys are going to speak this. Some speak that. Some speak that. Some speak that. And um, you're all going to also, I am going to make you leave here. I don't know what that looked like, but that looked like something. (laughs) So that is where I believe that I got cut off. Now let me pray as we dive into the rest of my message. Yeah, Lord, I just pray that we would be able to join in with your story. We want to understand your story so that we can operate in your story and we can be a part of your story. God, what a privilege to be a part of your story. So we just say yes to understanding it. I pray you just release just so much discernment and wisdom over people's ears. God, that um, even if I say something that is out of line or isn't in alignment with what um, is revealed in scripture and what you're saying, God, that you would make that so known to me and you would just cancel it out of other people's mindsets, God. But I pray that the truth that is being revealed, we would just grab hold of so we can run the race and so we can live in your story and have intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, behind the scenes of Babel. We see they get dispersed, but let's look at what, how Moses describes what was happening at Babel in Deuteronomy 32. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. So this is Moses, who, by the way, is a guy who spoke face-to-face with God, okay? He's a pretty good teacher, pretty reliable source of understanding history. So he is recounting history for us in Deuteronomy 32. That's what Moses is doing. Verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, I want to make sense of verse 8, and then we're going to just start sprinting with verse 9 through the rest of the Bible, okay? But verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, okay, so the nations, this is talking about the earth, talking about people. When he divided mankind, again, talking about people. He's saying, I decided there's going to be languages and boundaries, You know, that's what nations are. And mankind is who is filling those nations. Then it says, he fixed the borders of the peoples, again, reinforcing this idea of specific areas for them, according to the number of the sons of God. What this means is he dispersed humanity according to their languages, and he gave them new languages, sent them all around and put borders, and then he said, here, I'm gonna put this son, this, this spiritual being over this people. I'm gonna make this spiritual being be the kind of like, um, you know, ruler under, under me over this people. This lowercase g God is a good way to think of it. Now, as soon as I say that, lowercase g God and a spiritual being ruling a people, I think we just get so like, oh, Oh, like, you know, we start to have indigestion probably when I say that because of our um, super Western worldview. But we're talking about a biblical worldview, right? We're not trying to defend the things that we have grown up thinking. We're trying to understand how did the Bible think? And one of our problems is this. We have been raised to oversimplify the spiritual realm. The characters in the spiritual realm, we basically limit to four different entities. God, his angels, devil, his demons, that is basically our four categories. And if something doesn't neatly fit in there, it's Greek mythology or it's New Age or whatever. When in reality, the spiritual realm is much more complex than that. You know that, that Paul in the New Testament, he doesn't even say that our, our uh, warfare is against demons or the devil. He says it's against principalities and powers. So the spiritual realm is much more complex than those four characters. And what I want to introduce to you right now is a whole nother set, a kind of subset of spiritual beings and characters in the kingdom thread narrative. So turn to Psalm 82 really fast, just to get more, kind of flesh this out for yourself a little bit. Psalm 82 says that, here's what God says. This is what the psalmist is saying. God has taken his place in the divine council. This is a council that is made up of divine beings. 
in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So here's the thing. That word, I, I only know this because of personal study, not because of my understanding of Hebrew, but it says God, Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohims, he holds judgment. So it's saying that this that God that we know to be Yahweh is taking his place in his council. That's how we know it's talking about Yahweh because the only God that has a council that's legitimate is Yahweh and he gathers his other, his other lowercase g gods, the other spiritual beings that are rulers and he holds counsel with them. And what he goes on to do is chastise them for disobeying him. These spiritual beings rebel and disobey God just like how humanity did. Skip down to verse six. I said, you are God, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So he's saying, look, your days are numbered. And then verse eight, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. God, you're gonna get all, everything back. The, everything that you gave for, other people, for those other principalities to rule, you're actually gonna get back and you're gonna rule. This is the psalmist just declaring the truth, like the obvious statement. So Psalm 82 fleshes out for us more that there is this other set of characters um, that are operating in the kingdom thread and in, in, in the world today that we need to be aware of because there's a whole storyline going on in the Bible with the natural realm and the supernatural realm. Look at, to flesh this out one step further, go to Daniel 10 with me. We're gonna read four verses that are kind of long but really sweet. Daniel 10, you can just listen to me if you're not there yet or write it down. Daniel 10, 10 through 14. This is Daniel speaking. And behold, a hand touched me, Daniel, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand for what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Here's what's happening. Daniel has just had this crazy vision. All of a sudden, an angel shows up and touches him and gives him strength. He's able to stand up and um, pay attention now. And he says, from the very first day you started praying, I started flying <laughs> or whatever, however they move, you know, I was on my way. But when I got to where you are, there's this other principality in this area in, in Persia called the Prince of the Kingdom of Persia. And he was fighting me. He withstood me. A bad spiritual being was disrupting God's will and plan. That's what we are seeing happen right now is that God's will is being disrupted momentarily by this other spiritual being fighting. And guess what? God sends reinforcements. Michael, the even buffer angel, comes and whoops the prince of Persia, and Gabriel's able to finish his, I mean, it's Gabriel, it doesn't say it's Gabriel, is able to get there and finish his mission and um, give Daniel the revelation, explain to him the understanding. He's able to interpret for Daniel the vision he had. So think about the implications of this. Number one, real warfare is going on around us. There is a spirit that is assigned to America to sow racism and disruption. And right now he's probably wreaking havoc and just having tons of fun. But guess what? After my dad's prayer and after our agreement, he got a huge black eye. And he's being, his power is being ripped away. And as the church stands up and realizes our identity and realizes our war is not against flesh and blood, that principality loses power, loses power, loses power until it's not as much of an issue or an issue. Um, so that's real. Okay, real. When you pray, when you're crying out, when you're heartbroken, you pray, maybe you just need to keep praying and waiting because God's sending reinforcements. Maybe that's what's happening, guys. Um, and then the second really important implication of this is Prince of the kingdom of Persia. That means that this principality is assigned to, what do you know, a specific people and border. <laughs> this is probably a spiritual being that God assigned over this region that fell and rebelled against God. 
So the spiritual realm, the spiritual narrative is really happening, okay? So what's the first thing that happens after Babel? We're gonna keep going. It's that Abram, Abraham gets called. Literally, the narrative after Babel, it just is like a genealogy and this really brief little, little story about a guy named Terah, and then boom, we get back into a narrative story and it's all about Abram, who now is the, is the okay, now understand Deuteronomy 32.9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage, inheritance or whatever it says. Who is Abram? He is the precursor to Jacob and Israel. So, God, so Deuteronomy says that after the Tower of Babel, God received an inheritance, it's Abram. We're picking up that same story. You see like how, the, how Babel and Abram are connected, the call of Abram? So Abram starts going. And Abraham um, starts a journey that leads to the formation of the nation of Israel. But here's some highlights along the way. He has a son named Isaac, who he almost has to sacrifice. He get, he, um, and and here's, the, here's the reason that God wanted Abraham to uh, sacrifice Isaac. Just to show Abraham that he is not like the other gods that would make you sacrifice your children. Their gods in that region, they said, sacrifice your kids to me. So what does God do? He says, I need, I need to reveal to Abraham I'm not like that, so I'm going to make him think that that's what I want him to do, but then at the last second, I'm going to deliver him and save him. That was all God attempting to reveal himself in opposition to the other spiritual beings to Abraham. He's trying to flesh out what he's like. And here's how we know that God doesn't do that to us today, because it says that he does not tempt us. <laughs> in, that fit, in that time of history, God did tempt someone for a reason, but we know that in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that no temptation is overtaking you except as is common to mankind. And in James, it says God does not tempt. So we know that God doesn't do that type of stuff to us. But Abraham didn't know that, so God was like, I'm gonna have a little bit of proverbial fun right now. Not fun, okay? Not cool, God. Man, your sense of humor. Okay. So Abraham, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes a nation of Israel. What happens next? Um, Israel gets enslaved in Egypt. And check out what Exodus 12, 12 says. God, God raises up a deliverer for the nation of Israel. His name is Moses. And check out what God does. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Natural narrative. I'm going to kill all the firstborn children in Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. So God is not just judging the, the human narrative in Egypt. He's actually judging the supernatural narrative. So we see the kingdom thread is still going. The unseen realm is still part of the story. So they leave, they leave Egypt. They eventually make it to the promised land by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin. And um, this whole season comes into to play with judges and prophets ruling over them. And the point of this season of time is this. They did not have a king. There was no human representing God to them. There was only prophets and judges that everyone knew just received from God and then executed what God wanted. Whereas a king is actually someone that's supposed to be the leader you look to. And a king wasn't um, God's idea. The nations around Israel had kings before Israel did. And Israel then falls into the trap of taking on a king. A king wasn't God's first choice for Israel because he knew that they would get their hearts bent on following a king instead of following him. And we see the terror of Israel, what happens when they follow kings. They follow kings into all kinds of heinous stuff. That's the next phase is the time of the kings, the judges and the prophets, and then the time of the kings. Saul is the first king. He's pretty lame in the end, but then David comes in. Yay, man after God's own heart. This is awesome. He's not perfect, but in his heart, he's after God, committed to God. David has a son named Solomon, who at first is looking pretty slick and godly. Solomon messes up. And what is it that Solomon did to mess up? He marries women who worship other gods, and he starts to worship other gods. Solomon doesn't start to worship other wooden images. He starts to worship 
other spiritual beings. You understand that? Solomon wasn't going up there offering sacrifices um, just to like the thin air. <laughs> you know, like he thought like, okay, man, like I'm just gonna, whatever, sorry, I married the princess of Egypt, so I'm gonna go after this God for a while. Like he, Solomon literally does that. He has, um, and then after Solomon, the kingdom splits. And we see that, that uh, it, it splits, that Solomon's son really messes up and God, his name is Rehoboam, I think. He messes up, but he becomes the first king in the line of Judah. And then another guy becomes the first king in the line of Israel. And Israel just always has evil kings. So the nation of Israel is divided at this point. There's a northern kingdom called Israel. There's a southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, it has horrible king after horrible king after horrible king. Ahab and you know, his wife is Jezebel and Amnon and all these super evil dudes that are sacrificing their kids and um, all kinds of debauchery. But then Judah is the bottom and the, the, all the kings from Judah are in the line of David, the man after God's own heart. And all of these kings, not all of them, but several of them are good kings. And they actually are after God in their heart. But a bunch of them are evil and bad. And it's kind of like back and forth, back and forth. Until Israel gets judged. Israel has chance after chance to repent. God, finally, God sends them into captivity. Judah has chance after chance after chance to repent. They don't. They get sent into captivity. They go into exile in Babylon. Guess where they end up? Back in Babylon. They're taken into captivity in Babel, which is into Babylon, which is where the Tower of Babel was. They're taken back to ground zero of um, where they got sent out from. So in the exile, Ezra gets raised up. I'm just gonna, I'll just finish, yeah. Um, they get sent into exile. Ezra gets raised up. And guess, check this out. Ezra, he's a priest and a scribe. He gets sent by a pagan evil king to do God's will. Cyrus. He is like super evil. He is like Hitler level evil. Like that's the, like what Hitler did was like a, a replication of the type of actions that kings of this era would do. Like Cyrus and Xerxes and um, the other dudes. That level of depravity character, God decides, hey, I'm gonna use this for my own, I'm gonna use this person for my own will, gives him visions and dreams, and says, give Ezra all the money and resources he wants to go build Jerusalem and to go reestablish my temple. So Ezra does that, and we come out of exile, and that's where the Old Testament ends. Um, the nation of Israel is back in its homeland, and a ton of stuff happens before Jesus comes on the scene, but we're kind of left on this cliffhanger where the nation of Israel is like semi-reestablished. It's back in, you know, Palestine, that area of the world. And they're kind of like doing their best, but there's other enemies coming in and afflicting them. And ultimately the Romans come in and take them over. But here is like the cliffhanger we're left on in the Old Testament. Israel is God's redemptive people and he wants to bless the entire earth through them. That's who Israel is. But... They are really sucking and struggling. <laughs> okay, that's like the narrative of the Old Testament. But, second but, they did well enough to set the stage for Jesus. Okay, so we give Israel a really horrible rap, but they did well enough to set the stage for Jesus. Okay, so Jesus bursts onto the scene. The exile happens. Okay, Jesus comes onto the scene. So Jesus is the second Adam. Who was he? He was of Davidic lineage, but he had no sinful nature. So this means that David's human representative father and mother, actually, they both come from the Davidic line. They both come from the Davidic lineage. And David was promised that his, his descendant would sit on the throne forever. And so that's who Jesus is. But guess what? He doesn't actually have a sinful nature. He's not born of the seed of man, which is how the sinful nature gets passed on. He's actually born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, and Jesus comes into the picture. 
Again, like there's parallels we should be seeing between the Nephilim and what the old, happens in the Old Testament and then how God comes to totally redeem. It's just like how God is redeeming things in the natural narrative and the supernatural narrative is so impressive. So what's Jesus do? He perfectly fulfills the covenant that humanity couldn't with God. And what's a covenant? Simply put, it's a contract between two individuals. One person is... Um, one party in the, in the covenant has more power than the other. That's a significant thing. And if the lesser party fulfills all the parts of the, um, all the qualifications the higher part wants, then they get benefits from the higher party. That's what a covenant contract is in this scenario. That's not how a marriage covenant works, but that's, that's what a biblical covenant was, how it was working. And Jesus comes in and takes on the form of um, um, humanity. He lowers himself. He doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but takes on the form of a servant. And he perfectly fulfills God's covenant with humanity. If you want to really understand this deeper, read Hebrews 8 and 10. It's just full of really powerful um, unpacking of what the Old Testament covenant was foreshadowing. But here's a key thought for us. The Old Covenant, it was dependent upon human behavior for it to be fulfilled. Just if you want to understand it in a nutshell, in the old covenant, the old relationship, the covenant dictated the type of relationship God was going to have with humanity. And there's all kinds of stipulations in it. Um, and the reason that God had to do that was because he was working with the best that he could. Humanity was sinful at its core. It wasn't redeemed. Put it this way, God couldn't trust humanity in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God can actually trust born-again believers because we're not of the sinful fallen line. We're actually regenerated. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God inside of us. His law is written on our hearts now, not written on a tablet. And so um, the old covenant, it was dependent upon human behavior. Our relationship with God was all dependent upon our performance. And then when we failed, we had to get a sacrifice in order to put us back in a place that we could have a relationship with God. But in the new covenant, our relationship with Yahweh is dependent on Jesus. The new covenant, our relationship with God is not dependent on our behavior. It's actually dependent upon Jesus. And what's this do? It restores the intimacy that we lost in the garden. It restores us to a place of not being ashamed before God, not being ashamed before other people. It restores us to a place where I'm gonna walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. That's what getting into Jesus' covenant does for us. It's so incredibly amazing. So Jesus not only fulfills the covenant, but his life mission was to destroy the works of the devil, all who are oppressed of the devil. That's what it says in Acts 10, 38, that Jesus went about healing the sick and doing good to all those who were oppressed by the devil. What's that? Supernatural narrative. Not the human narrative about a king who fills the, who fills the covenant, but a supernatural narrative about a warrior who um, fights the bad guy. The supernatural bad guy. That's what Jesus is all about. So then Jesus goes to the cross, and guess what? He comes out of the grave. <laughs> cross, resurrection, bang. He takes sin up on there, and he comes out of the grave without it. But what's happening in the supernatural narrative? Turn to John 14 really quick. <clears throat> John 14, 30 says this. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Who's the ruler of this world at that time? Satan. But guess what? He has no claim on Jesus because Jesus isn't in the line of fallen sinful humanity. Jesus is, over, is born of the spirit, overshadowed by the most high. So he, the devil doesn't have any claim on him. He's fulfilled the covenant. He's lived a perfect life before God. And then turn to John 16, 11. Here's what it says. Um, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this, Jesus is saying, the verdict is out. I'm condemning the devil. I'm, he is judged. I'm considering him judged because I know I'm about to go to the cross where the victory is won. So there's the supernatural narrative coming into play with the cross and resurrection, and then we get the Great Commission. Jesus comes back and he says, what? 
Go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And what's he doing here? He's reinstituting the three assignments from the garden. He's reinstituting to us the original mission that God gave to humanity. He's saying, you guys take the mission that God gave Adam and Eve, and I want you to complete it now. I want you to go out and make all the nations disciples of me. And again, what is the word nations connected to in the Old Testament? This whole idea of spiritual beings that rule over nations. But he's saying, no, I want every nation to be a disciple of me, not a disciple of their spiritual being. So that's our goal is to go and make every single nation a disciple of Jesus. How does that happen? People get discipled and principalities and powers come down. So here's how my dad says it. Jesus got a promotion and we got his old job. Jesus gets a promotion and we, humanity, we get his old job, which was to destroy the works of the devil and disciple the earth. So how does this apply to us? Well, guess what, guys? The book of Acts is our story, all right? You are living in the book of Acts right now. You are living in chapter 10,000 of the book of Acts, one million, whatever, okay? The book of Acts is still being written. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The 52 books in the Bible are the complete revelation of God. I can't add to scripture. But we are living in the book of Acts, okay? So here's some questions to answer, and I'm gonna answer these quick. Number one, who are we? Number two, what is God like? Number three, what is our mission? Number four, what are our means to complete this mission? Number five, how do we get along? Because we know it's not easy. How does humanity get along? (laughs) Number six, how does the spiritual realm play in? Well, here's your quick six answers. And you know, likely I'll do another message about this and fill it out more later, but um, here are six answers. Number one, who are we? We are saints, sons, and new creations. And the key thing is, is we are children of God. We are restored. In John 1, 12, it says, yet to all those who did believe in him, who, or, yet to all those who believed in his name, it's a, it's a TMS verse. So, so many people in here that know it are coordinate to me. Um, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we actually have the coveted title of children of God. All of humanity doesn't have that. All of humanity that's not received Jesus, they are orphans. That is how we should understand who they are. They are estranged from their father. They're not, they're still children, but they're estranged orphan children that we want to love compassionately back into a place of being restored and believing in Jesus. Um, What is God like? He is good. He is just like Jesus. One of Jesus' missions was to reveal God to us. Over and over and over in the book of John, and then Paul unpacks it too, it says that Jesus is the full revelation of God. That if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. So we can trust that if I want to understand what God is like, I don't look at the Bible per se, I look at Jesus in the Bible. That's how I understand who God is. Number three, what is our mission? It's to make disciples of nations. Deuteronomy 32.8, Psalm um, 82.6, arise, O Lord, inherit all the nations. That's our job, is to make that so for the Lord. Um, Number four, what are our means? The Holy Spirit hooks us up, all right? The Holy Spirit empowers us, gives us gifts, talents, insight, power. The Holy Spirit is our means. He's our best friend. Um, how, How do we get along? Sacrificial love and real boundaries. Lay down my life for a friend, but everyone should bear their own burden. We sacrificially love others, but we don't make their problem our problem. That's actually not healthy. When you make other people's problem your problem, and you know why? Because they're not doing a good job of fixing their problem, so what makes you think that if you take ownership of their problem, you will fix it? (laughs) No, you will just get sucked into the whole problem. What you do is from the outside, you say, hey, do you need my help? I wanna help you. Hey, I really wanna help you. Can I help you? Can I help you? Then they go, yes, please, and then you help them. Or they go, no, and you go, okay, I love you, but until you ask for my help, I'm gonna offer it, but until you, until you receive it, I'm sorry, that's your problem. Like, I, and God is there to help you, like the Holy Spirit. So um, sacrificial love and real boundaries. And then lastly, our enemy, who is it? Supernatural. Ephesians 6, 12, your battle is not against flesh and blood. 
Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Got to get that in our head. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So I, I gave this whole message because I wanted us to see the kingdom thread in scripture, for it to impact our worldview, and then for us to go into the earth and bring the kingdom and to, to live properly, functionally, healthily, because we have the kingdom thread. I want to read something to you really quick um, to wrap my message up. This is a story about a couple of church planters who were um, church planting in North Africa. These are North African guys who used to be Muslims that are now believers in Jesus and they're planting churches. And there's a huge movement of God happening in North Africa with tons and tons and tons and tons of um, Muslims coming into a relationship with Jesus. But listen to this story. And it's written, it's a firsthand account of people whose first language is not English. So it's kind of like funny, not not funny, but it's not perfect English uh, as you read it. Okay. Here is a story from a church planter told in his own words. And I want you to stand wherever you are. There is a village where I sent two of my church planters. After a few days, the village discovered that the men were Christians and sent them out. They don't want anything to do with Christianity, they said. The men came back and reported to me, that village is hostile. Went to the chief and the chief said, no, they don't like that. So they don't want us there. And we have come back. So I said, okay, if you have come back, then let's pray. So this is the leader telling those two church planners, okay, let's pray. Like, here's how we, here's our strategy to get you back into that. We're not going to give up, but our strategy is to pray. So we spent about two days. I told the intercessory team, I said, let's pray for that village. So we prayed for that village and they mean 24 seven, they prayed for that village for two days. And I said, okay, by next week, I'm adding another person to you, so there will be three of you. Go there again, let's see what happens. Come on, we're on the offensive. So they went there. But the amazing thing was that the chief's son, who rejected them, who was Muslim, said, get out of here, had a problem. He had a physical problem, and they had tried lots of things, a lot of ways to amend that problem, to no avail. You know, as they entered the village, they went to the chief's compound, and the chief still replied to them, no way, you people again, we have sent you out. You have gone, and you have come again, no way. So they said, well, chief, may we pray? And the chief said, who will deny prayer? Muslims are very receptive to prayer. As long as it is prayer to help us, we will not deny it. Pray for us, but after prayer, please, you can go, because we don't want you to come and say anything to our children to turn their heart from what they are taught from Islam to another religion. That is the white man's religion. We don't need it here. So what's happening? There's a principality over that um, region that is reinforcing Islam, and they don't want them to turn away from the religion, but there's the spirit going on, you know? We don't need that white man's religion here. The two church planters saw the son's sickness, a kind of polio, and they said, can we pray for your son? And he said, yes, blah, 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 sorry, he read that. You can pray. And here's the exciting news. They prayed for that child and instantly he became healed. Completely, no limping, no nothing. The child jumped up. He had polio in an African village. He is sitting there, skin and bones flimsy, not operable. Instantly healed, jumps up, is running around. The child jumped up and said, I am healed father and grabbed his father. The father said, you people, you are magicians. And they said, no, this is Jesus. And the man said, as from today, this is your home. If you want, you can build a very big cathedral. That is your business. But take the town, you are welcome. They did not take the chief up on his generous cathedral in the bush offer, but they were permitted to make disciples and plant a church in that place. I just want to propose to you that they were making disciples of nations in that moment. They weren't getting an individual saved. They were getting a whole people saved. And here's what I got to tell us, guys. Let's do it. Okay? Let's do it. That is, that is the takeaway. We are living in that story. Okay? We are living that story. Let's make our neighborhoods healed of polio. You know, like, let's, I don't even have words, okay? Like, let's do that here. Let's send people to go. Some of us need to go and do it and the China and the Middle East, but let's make it our mission. Let's understand that that is what I'm on the earth for. Full intimacy with God and full subduing and and, um, destroying of the works of the devil.
So Jesus, we um, just fully sign up. We can't do it alone though. Holy Spirit, just welcome you to fall. Will you come right now? Just encourage you, put your hands out like you're about to receive a gift. Let's just see what God drops on people right now for a moment. We're already 20 minutes over, so we might as well. Come, Holy Spirit. Breathe again, God. Freshly empower us to make disciples of nations. Just say, let it come right now in Jesus' name. I just bless the assignments being dropped on people right now. People are receiving assignments and faith for this mission, and I just bless that in Jesus' name. We just, we press in and we, we receive full intimacy with you, Jesus. Full intimacy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks guys. You're the crazy crew that hung in for a long message. So hope to see you next week. Um, have an awesome one.